This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Sam and I are continuing this week in the series on from the Gospel of Mark on the identity of Jesus. What do we learn about who Jesus is, what kind of person he was, understanding him as a person? Uh, before we get in, actually starting next week, we'll be getting into the mission of Jesus. What was his mission? Um, so today we're coming to the last of the chapters that we have sort of cataloged as the identity of Jesus. And uh, it's Mark chapter 8. And Sam, I think it's a good one. Um, you and I had a rather lively conversation because this chapter will begin with the feeding of the 4,000. And you and I were just having a conversation about the differences between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. There are some contrasts, big contrasts, mm-hmm. between these two. And not just the fact that one of them had 1,000 more people. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, when he's, when he's feeding the 5,000, he's in all of the cities along the Sea of Galilee where the Jews have been, and they're following him around, if you remember, and they're all exhausted, but they keep following them. And so eventually Jesus is going to feed this crowd of 5,000 Jews. And right after that miracle, remember, he goes to Tyre and Sidon, the area which is a Gentile territory, and not just any Gentiles. These are Gentiles that the prophets had said, you know, would be would face judgment, which they had. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are considered kind of forsaken lands, and he goes there and he has a conversation with a with a Syrophoenician woman. And what does she say? You know, even even the dogs long to receive the crumbs of what? Bread from the master's table. And it's like, you know, it's almost like she's saying, I know I'm not entitled to a feast because I'm a Gentile, but please, I, like, I'll take even the crumbs. And Jesus has this great teaching moment where he's like, no, 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 you are a daughter of Israel. Because of your faith, you're now grafted in. And he leaves that miracle, and it's like, you know, Jesus is doing the pinball thing again. Sure. <laughs> except now not just from with the Sea of Galilee. So he goes from the Mediterranean coast, he goes across the Sea of Galilee into a place called the Decapolis, which was ten little, you know, city-state kind of things that were Greek, Gentile. Uh, this is Gentile territory, and now he's going to seemingly – replicate what he did for the 5,000 where he gave the Jews a great feast, right, where they ate their fill and had tons left over. And it's like he's gone from this place where a Gentile's begging for crumbs, and now he's going into a Gentile territory. And it's like he's teaching his apostles, he's teaching us, he's teaching the world, and he's showing them love by saying, you're not just getting crumbs, I'm going to give for you the same feast that I lavish upon the Jews is absolutely available to the Gentiles as well. Mm-hmm. So he's teaching through all these miracles. He's setting up this uh, this argument, this this persuasive case to the disciples that grace and mercy and God's favor is available to the Gentiles every bit as much as the Jews. 
Well, let's dive in and look at it and look at some of these details. Uh, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. I wanted to stop here and say this was one of the first differences I noticed between the 5,000 and the 4,000 is that with the feeding of the 5,000, it was the disciples who came to Jesus and said, everybody's hungry. You know, we should send them out into the, to the villages to buy food to eat. And then Jesus does what he does. But the disciples are, are watching the crowd or interacting with the crowd or telling him people are hungry. And in this case, at least in my mind's eye, I'm picturing the disciples kind of standing off to the side going, Jesus, really? Gentiles? You're going to talk to Gentiles? Um, and then it's Jesus that calls to the disciples and says, these people are hungry. You know, I have compassion on them. And it says they've been with him for three days, which makes you wonder, like, have they been eating at all during this time? Are they just following? Are they camping on the hillsides? Like, you know, <laughs> they, they really would have been very, very hungry. And this is the first time. Where do they speak up? It's not the disciples. It's Jesus who says, okay, I'm going to have compassion on the crowds. So let me just lay this down for all of you that feel like the sermons are too long at church. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I kind of like this. Keep going. (laughs) 4,000 people followed Jesus for three days without food or water. So just saying, you know. So He was a a little bit better of a preacher than than what we offer, but. (laughs) Well, and the thing is that I mean, what he was what he was teaching the Gentiles was things the Gentiles had never heard before. Mm -hmm. You know, they they were there were certain familiarities between the teaching of Jesus and what the Jews had already been teaching, because some of what they said was right from the Old Testament, and it was true. They piled a lot of stuff on top of that that wasn't true, and Jesus was correcting them. But there were elements of truth that if you heard Jesus talking as part of a Jewish crowd, you would say, oh, he's talking about, duh, you know. As a Gentile, you've never heard any of this stuff before. Mm -hmm. This whole idea that there's just one God even was totally, you know, new to them. So they they had a very definite fascination with the teachings of Jesus. So verse four, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? As if they had forgotten. <laughs> if I had been with Jesus when he fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes, I would think I would remember that. You know? <laughs> yeah, here it comes again. See certain similarities, you know? Verse 5, and he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha, sorry. Went to the district of Dalmanutha. So we have here, there's seven loaves at the start. 
There's mm-hmm. seven baskets at the end. Um, in the one in the feeding of the five thousand, it wasn't. There were twelve baskets at the end, but there weren't twelve loaves at the start. Um, but you were saying that the seven has a meaning as far as the Gentile world. Mm-hmm. So if you go through the scriptures, and and this plays off of you know when he finishes the the feeding of the five thousand, there's twelve baskets left over. Well, that's not just that there was a serving portion for each of the apostles left over. Though that's part of it. The number twelve in Israel is very significant because it's it's kind of the number of Israel because there's twelve tribes of right. Israel. Okay, it's it's kind of a national number. But the number seven, if you go back all through the scriptures, what you'll find is seven is repeatedly associated with the Gentile world. Um, when the table of nations come out, when in Genesis chapter 10, when it's listing out all the nations on earth at that time, it lists out 70 nations, seven times 10. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when Moses is leading the 12 tribes of Israel – into the promised land, and he's going to hand that mission off to Joshua. But when Joshua comes into conquest, God says, you're going to displace the seven Gentile nations, which, by the way, are the people who make up the Decapolis, according to tradition, mm-hmm. or people from those tribes. It's the seven churches in Revelation that are the Gentile churches of Asia Minor. There's So, seven is very, very commonly associated with the Gentiles, and so You'll notice what one of the things that Jesus is going to do from this point on is he's like, do you understand why there were seven baskets left over? You're going to see in this chapter, he'll, he'll repeatedly come back to that. It's important to Jesus that they understand why seven baskets were left over. And he's, he's emphasizing that message when, when he's feeding the 5,000, you know, and he's got all these Jews coming to him. It's like he's saying, I, because I'm God, I can create out of nothing. I can give you an abundance where you don't see a possibility and not just give you the abundance for a feast, but to have co- like amounts left over, an abundance. And so then he comes in with seven baskets left over for the Gentiles. And like you were talking about, you know, the disciples are like, we're in Gentile territory. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? You know, the Syrophoenician woman who's like, you know, I, I'm not even worthy of the like the crumbs, but I'll take them. And here you have Jesus saying, you know, not only am I going to feed these Gentile people in the Decapolis, but I want you to understand that there is an abundance. I'm not just going to meet their needs. I want you to know that there is an absolute abundance that's left over, and it's for them too. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is is going against the grain. Israel is teaching that you know this is all for us and our bloodline, and we're you know we have the genetic DNA of of Isaac and Jacob, and it's all about us. And Jesus is coming and saying, no, 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 the gospel is for the whole world. The bread of life is for the whole world. And and to be honest, you see a little bit more worship coming out of the Gentiles than you did with the Jews. And and this this idea of the seven is very, very clearly what Jesus is saying is this is for the Gentiles too. Mm. You know, um, and I, the other thing that I think is interesting, uh, and I played this, this little Bible trivia game, like Bible bar baths or whatever, I don't know, with you beforehand. <laughs> I said, which of these had more food left over? And you said, as most people would say, well, the 5,000, because there's 12 yeah, baskets 12. instead of seven. 12 said, is greater than seven. Yeah. I said, <laughs> no, because the 12 baskets in the 
5,000 were basically picnic campers. They were the kinds of things you would take food with if you were going to eat lunch or take a trip that you knew you needed to eat some food on. They were picnic baskets, okay? These baskets, these seven baskets, totally different Greek word. That's the one mm-hmm. thing about Greek to English. You know, you sometimes wonder, you know, Mark, why are you always harping on the original language? Why do you always talk about the original languages? Because in English, we have a basket and then a big basket and then a big honking basket and a huge basket. <laughs> we modify our nouns with adjectives. And in Greek, they would just come up with a different noun for it. They have a different name for it. So these were two totally different baskets. The baskets here, these seven baskets, were big enough that in Acts chapter 9, when they were lowering Paul to safety over the city walls, they put him in one of these baskets. Mm -hmm. These baskets could fit a man inside of them. So there was actually much more left over at the feeding of the Gentiles than there was at the feeding of the Jews. You know, as you were telling me that, and I was finding out that my trivia was wrong, I went and, of course, I'm nerding out as you're talking because I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm going and I'm looking at the original Greek, and it's absolutely right. And one of the ways that you translate basket that's included in all the commentaries is for the for the Gentiles is hamper, you know, which I think is helpful because it would be the the difference of like having. You know, if you imagine an Easter egg basket, that's a that's a basket, right? But you 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 immediately you have a particular size that comes to mind. But if I said to you, hamper, well, it's a basket, yeah. <laughs> but but you could get inside the hamper. You know, like it's human, it's hum, a massive amount, and so that's that's really fascinating. Which which is going to show. I don't mean to steal your point here, but the seven the seven baskets held far more than the twelve, right? And I think that I think the point I was going to make is that Jesus was showing his disciples, I will provide as abundantly and more so for mm-hmm. the Gentiles as I will for you who are part of Israel. Um, this was another one of Jesus' examples. Um, the other thing I like about these miracles is the miracles that Jesus had done, apart from these two feedings, were mostly divided into healing and casting out evil spirits. That's what he was doing most. He There was a resurrection in there. Certainly that was something no one else had ever done. <laughs> but, you know, maybe you could have an argument about was the little girl really dead? I don't know. She was dead. She was dead. She was dead. I understand that. But I'm just saying people could argue about that. No, she's just asleep. Jesus said she's just asleep. Yeah, no. And from Jesus' perspective, she was. But what I'm saying is this was the these two miracles are the ones where the miracle is the is that of creation. Mm-hmm. He is creating out of nothing, you know, more bread and more fish, a lot more bread and a lot more fish to feed <laughs> these huge crowds of people. He's showing them I am doing something that God alone can do. I'm creating. I'm making something out of nothing. Yeah, so I was looking at one of the commentaries on Mark also points out that, <laughs> you know, in the in the first miracle with the Jews, they had to go and take the supply of the little boy. You remember the little boy has five loaves and two fish. Right. And so the disciples go out there and, and they take someone else's provision and Jesus multiplies it. And they're like, oh, this is wonderful. But this time he says, how many loaves do you have? 
And now the disciples are like, we <laughs> and our personal inventory have seven. And Jesus is like, I want them. I want them for the Gentiles. And he's requiring his disciples to give of themselves for these Gentiles. He's stretching them a little bit more. And one commentary pointed out, and I think this is funny. I don't know that this is actually the way that it unfolded, but it reads that way in Mark, and it's just funny. They give him the bread, and then he multiplies them, and then they're like, okay, yeah, well, here's, here's some fish, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they don't come with the whole supply it, the way it reads when you get to verse 7. And they also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said you know, that they should be given, too. So you get the idea that the disciples came in stages like, all right, now we'll trust you with the fish. <laughs> so what we're missing is the last half of verse 7 where Jesus goes, all right, anything else I should know about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, yeah, that's, you know, but it is, you know, I think that the fact that he did two such similar miracles, one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles, was, is just so profound. Mm -hmm. It's it's Jesus saying, I will provide for Jews and Gentiles both. This mm -hmm. gospel, this kingdom, this is for both. It's not just for the Jews, you know. Um, and I think that was the point that was being made, like you say, with the Syrophoenician woman. He says, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. And then he tells her, because of her faith, she's included in that. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's, right. th that's the connecting point. He's starting with the Jews, going to the lost sheep of Israel. Then he moves to the Gentiles, where he is still finding lost sheep of Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, there's in Acts chapter 6 to take the, the numbers. So you have 12, 12 baskets left over associated with the Jews, and you have the seven baskets left over associated with the Gentiles. And Jesus is, you'll, we'll see, he's going to be like, do you get it? Do you get the seven? I think it's interesting and more than a coincidence that when you get to Acts chapter 6, so this is, you know, Jesus has died, he's risen, he's ascended into heaven, and this is like the infancy of the church, right? They're figuring everything out. And they're all sharing things in common. All of the disciples are coming together. And right in Acts chapter 6, you have a group called the Hellenists, which means they're, they're Greek-speaking. They're mm -hmm. from foreign nations. They're, right. they're you know, Gentile nations. And they come to the disciples and they say, hey, like we've noticed that the supply that everybody is sharing is not going to our widows. And the 12 apostles decide, you know what, like we need to settle this, but we need to be devoted to the word of God. We need to be devoted to prayer. And so you get the world's first ordination of deacons, right? And so it says they call – the 12 apostles call over the Hellenists, the Greek speakers, the Gentile you know, nations, and they say, even if they're Jews from the Gentile nations, and they say, we want you to appoint how many? Seven. Seven deacons to make sure that your Hellenist disciples get their bread. And there you see it again. And, and I think when Jesus is like, do you understand the meaning of the seven? Do you understand the meaning of the seven? Do you understand the meaning of the seven? I want the Gentiles fed too. That when you get to Acts chapter 6, there's this beautiful completion where you have the 12 on their own saying, yeah, we get it. Yeah. We're going to give the Gentiles bread, and we're going to anoint seven people to do so. If at some My, point, uh, folks, you hear the thun the rumbling behind me, it's uh, yes, it's thundering because it's Florida, and it's the afternoon, <laughs> and it's time to rain. 
It really is. It's like, all right, it's two thirty. Here comes the thunder. Here comes the thunder. So it's I'm hearing it at my place too. So So when they get back in the boat and they travel over to the district of Dalman Dalmanutha, I keep wanting to say Dalman so pronounce it wrong. Dalmanutha. Um I, I was looking for information on that region. It's, it's back in Jewish territory. Mm-hmm. And nobody today really knows exactly what was the region of Dalmanutha, but they believe that it's where Magdala was, which is, mm-hmm. which is the city of Magdala that Mary Magdalene came from. So, um, so that was kind of interesting, that, it, mm-hmm. that that would be her home area. Yeah, they think of it like you know, Broward County would be Dalmanutha. But the city is Fort Lauderdale, and the city would be Magdala. And Dalmanutha is kind of lost to history. We don't know exactly what that is, but we believe the city there was Magdala. Right. We still have Magdala. They, they, they've yeah, uncovered right. all that. I have been there. Have you? Kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, I have. Cool. One of the most beautiful paintings um, that I have in my home in my closet is I bought at Magdala of the woman touching the hem of Jesus's garment, and it's it's a beautiful painting. Okay, I have to send it to you. L- let me get this straight. I want to follow this logic here for a second. You have a painting that you bought in the, and you think it's one of the most beautiful paintings you have. <laughs> and I just want to get this straight, and it's in your closet. Well, my wife transformed the closet into her prayer closet. Okay, okay, <laughs> good. So, so in the closet, there's clothes on one side, and then a little prayer bench against okay. the wall. That's fine. And so it's it's right there. That's fine. I just was, I was just going to ask <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, I didn't if you think knew, that through. I just was going to ask you if you knew what art was used for. Yeah, we you put know? it in the attic. Yeah, I bought this picture. I got it face down under the bed. It's great. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Okay, so when Jesus gets back into this Jewish territory, guess who comes up to find him? <laughs> I just imagine they've been waiting, hovering, buzzing like bees. Wait till he comes back. We got something for him this time. Wait till he comes back. Verse They're 11. exhausting to even read about, these yeah, they, people. They are. Um, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. I want to point out something here. The Greek word used for test there is the same Greek word that is used in the temptation of Jesus by Satan. Mm-hmm. What's actually saying is they're asking him for a seeking a sign from heaven to tempt him. Mm-hmm. They want Jesus to misbehave. They want him to do something inappropriate. They want him to manifest his full glory or something like that. That's like just like the devil was. The devil's like, hey. Show your divine power. Show your divine authority. And Jesus is like, that's not why I've come. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing here. They're asking for a sign. In the study notes this week, I'm like, the Pharisees should have had plenty of signs. Jesus had been doing miracles all over the place. Mm-hmm. Everybody had plenty of signs. So what they're asking him for is for him to do something that would be you know, inappropriate or, or mm-hmm. abusive of oh. his power. What it, what it gets at is the Pharisees can't imagine a humble God, honestly. That's true. You're just you true. Know, Good point. Good point. <clears throat> you know, Jesus is going around. He's done all these miracles. And what has he done to serve himself? You know, like every single miracle he does is done to teach others about their need for his mercy, to teach others of their reliance upon him, to restore the fallen order. Like it's entirely other focused. All of his miracles are lifting other people up. And they're like, all right, put it all aside. Like, we get it. Yeah, you feed people and you you rescue them and you calm this stuff, you know, the storms and everything else. 
show us your glory. Yeah. We want to see your power. Because yeah. if you're really God, you would not come with this kind of humility. Right. Show us your power. Yeah. And that is antithetical to the entire mission of Jesus. That's He came to show that if you want to be like God, God is a humble God who serves others. That's his character. And they can't imagine that to be the case. Yeah. Yeah, there are plenty of places in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus coming in glory. And says, then with his angels. So when that coming happens, you should have already picked a side. I'm just saying. It's like <laughs> when Jesus shows up and is manifesting his glory, surrounded by his angels, that's pretty much it. That's the, that's the game over. The last mm-hmm. buzzer, the clock all zeros. We're kind of moving on to the next thing. And there's, there's something really – Gosh, I don't, I don't even know how to put it without sounding wrong here. But when when Jesus is doing the miracle, like the feeding of the 5,000, if you open up John's version of events with the feeding of the 5,000, you get some of Jesus' thinking because he talks a lot more in John's gospel. Like we, we get his words and what he's speaking during that miracle. And one of the things that he's like harping on is – you people are just chasing me around so that you can get the blessing. Like, I'm God. I'm the bread of life. I'm the manna from heaven. Like, you need me. And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We don't want you. We want your blessing. So give us more bread and give us more healing and give us more this, that, and the other. And Jesus gets the sense, like, here's the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, and no one wants him. Yeah, They want his stuff. And he picks up. Right from the place that's kind of his church. These are the people of God that he's walking around with, and nobody wants him. And he goes to Tyre, and he comes across this Syrophoenician woman who's desperate for healing, and she's praising him as the son of David. And she's saying, "Like I, I know that I'm not worthy to eat at your table, but I'll take even the crumbs." And he's like, "Oh my gosh, you get it, you get it, woman of Tyre." And then he, you know, ding ding ding, bounces over to the Decapolis, and he's around a bunch of people who are not. Of his, you know, church, so to speak, right. not of the people of God. And it says that they're glorifying the God of Israel, even though they're Gentiles and they're praising him and they're they're following around hanging on his every word for three days, even though they haven't eaten. And it's like they're amazed by him. They can't get enough of him. And then he goes back to the church, back to the people of God, back to Israel, and they're like, Yeah, all this. This doesn't impress us. Show us your power. And like, can you just imagine being Jesus? It's just, it's exhausting. And a lot of times, you know, Jesus is leaving the people of God to be appreciated. And that's really profound to me Mm -hmm. because there's so often – that that when we relate to the and we get used to God's faithfulness and we get used to his power and we get used to 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 reading the scriptures and how much he loves us and what he's done to rescue us and save us that we grow accustomed to it and we become a lot like those Jews that are like okay give us some more yeah 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 we want your stuff we want your stuff where you know the 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 true worship is coming from the gentiles mm. they're amazed yeah. that God loves them amazed that he would come in the flesh amazed that he would be patient and heal them and and teach them and feed them they're blown away by it and then he goes back home and it's like all right we've got another problem with you and it's like oh my gosh like i've always I, believed it was because the jews felt like they'd been keeping the rules so god owed them mm-hmm. 
And the Gentiles were like, God? God, you're here? It's like they, for them, this, this whole idea is that in, in all the Gentile religions, in all the pagan religions, what are, what's the one thing that all of those gods are? They are indifferent and they've got their own interests. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're pursuing their own interests. They, and, and maybe they care about people in the same way that you care about your dog and I care about my cat. But this God that they're hearing about now has come to them, mm-hmm. you know, with this message of forgiveness, with this message of this kingdom. And it's like to the Gentiles, that had to be the most amazing thing they've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Totally this, unlike it. This, just think about what you're saying, though, because, okay, God comes into the flesh to both of them. To the Gentiles, they can't imagine. Like they're blown away by the fact that God would become a man and humble himself and serve them and be selfless. And then he goes home to his people and they're like, this isn't good enough. Yeah. You know, and they put him to the test. They're tempting him. Show us more. We these signs that you're doing in loving people and serving people and pouring yourself out. That's not what we want. We want to see your power. Show us. And it's mind-boggling how differently the two camps react to Jesus. Yeah. Spoiler alert, folks. If I don't want to, I don't want you to feel like I didn't give you a warning. But at the beginning of chapter nine, Jesus does reveal his glory. It's just to Peter, James, and John mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Transfiguration. Um, so you know, it's not that Jesus can't reveal his glory. It's that he is a God that has come in humility. So what's his response to this? Verse 12, it says, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. <laughs> I think that that's interesting because it adds that in his spirit. And the commentaries that I read, and I agree with this, what they're saying basically is it just made him feel sick inside. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what this is getting to. This is like a deep, grievous, I just wish you worked this way kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a powerful word. Can mean groaning, and it's 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 used once in the New Testament. This particular word, and it's very powerful. Just like gut wrenching groan. Yeah. Like, oh god. So if we ever th- if you ever think about because it, it's really easy today, and you've corrected me on this a few times, because I have that twenty first century American Christian view where. Pharisee equals bad guy. Anytime a Pharisee shows up in a story, I know that's the bad guy. And I'm expecting that everybody else knows that's the bad guy because, see, that's how it works here. The Pharisees are the bad guy. Mm -hmm. But in in that time, the Pharisees were the heroes. Mm -hmm. The Pharisees were the godliest among them. The Pharisees were the ones that everybody looked up to. And so I have to tell myself that Jesus was probably like, I just... I wish you saw this. I wish you would understand this. That it really did grieve him. He's not like, ha, 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 you just wait. You just wait. I got a surprise for you. But (laughs) that instead, he is deeply grieved over their lack of faith. Yeah, the Pharisees thought of themselves as the guardians of all orthodoxy. And and to their credit, if I'd have lived back then, I'd have been, I would have been sympathetic to the Pharisees. I have no doubt. Because if you if you read the history of Israel, every time that they fall into foreign captivity, every time that they fall into ruin, it's because they walk away from the Lord. It's because they abandon the law. It's because they start you know chasing other things, and the Pharisees are so 
absolutely suffocating that they won't let anyone forget the law. They won't let anyone forget the tradition. They put boundaries around everything. And the original heart behind that is we can't slide again. We, we've got to keep the rules. We've got to keep the favor of God. And, and then they take the law of God and build fences around that and more fences around that and more fences around that to where yeah. you're so suffocated with all these rules and the the heart, at least if you give the benefit of the doubt to any of the Pharisees, the if there were good ones, the heart behind it is we can't slide again. Yeah. We we can't lose this again. Sure. And there were some among the Pharisees who did believe. There were mm-hmm. some Pharisees yeah. that got it. Um, you know, we see the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, for example, and we know that Nicodemus got it. Um, you know, there's so that some of the Pharisees, some of the religious leaders did, in fact, understand who Jesus was. Mm-hmm. So in this case, he sighs deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. Jesus was just not going to play their game. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to give you the sign that the kind of sign that you want. And I think you're exactly right when you point out the fact that that would be self-serving to Jesus. Mm-hmm. When Jesus used his power miraculously, it was to benefit someone else every time. And for him to suddenly show his glory and his power to impress the Pharisees and be exalted among his people, that would be serving him. That'd be self-serving. Mm-hmm. And that's, Jesus was not self-serving. Yeah, he and the other gospels here when it when it talks about this when he says no sign is going to be given to this generation, the other gospels put a comma except the sign of Jonah. Um and what is that referring to is is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so what he's saying is while I'm alive, prior to my suffering, prior to my passion, prior to the cross, I am not going to take advantage of the fact that I'm God. I'm not going to reveal power. I'm not going to reveal glory. I'm not going to use my divine status to my own personal advantage. And you will not see a sign until I've conquered death. That will be a sign for you. Yeah. Um, and it's it's fascinating. You know, he's like, no, I'm not doing it. And then he leaves them. <laughs> and, you know, just yeah. like, I'm done here. And leaves them and gets in the boat and ping pongs <laughs> to the other side of the Sea of Galilee again. He, he got into the... Uh uh, first century uh, Israeli Uber water taxi or something. Mm-hmm. That's how they got around. And, they got they went to the cities. It was much faster to go by boat across yeah. the sea than it was to walk. Yeah, assuming there's not raging storms or wind. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, you know, if you have Jesus with you, you're going to be okay. Yeah, this is does this like when I come across passages like this where. Like I come across so many people who are so desperate to see God move and they're like, God, would you just do this, this one time? And it's coming from a good place, you know. You know, I don't know. Like I'm trying to think where my brain wants to go with that. <laughs> but that that need to see God do something when he has done – the irony is, oh my gosh, like have – have they not read the gospel of Mark up to this point? Like, good grief, he's walking on water and he's raising the dead and he's feeding the 5,000 and he's, you know, healing lepers and he's healing people with withered hands and he's doing all of these incredible things. Like, 
did they miss all of those signs? Yeah. But that's not what they want. What they're seeking is basically take off the mask. If you're really God, we want to see. And the reality is if he had done that, they'd have been obliterated. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, they wouldn't have been able to stand in his holiness or glory. Um, And it's almost mercy that he says no and walks away. I mean, it is mercy. Well, some of this, you know, looking for a sign kind of thing comes from doubt. You know, that's how people want to deal with their doubt is they want God to do a sign for them. And that's interesting because that's a segue into the next section here, which is the um, they get into the boat in verse 14. It tells us now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. This tells you where Jesus' mind still is. (laughs) He sees that bread, and he goes, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So the, the, the connection there is that we know from like Luke chapter 23 that Herod also wanted Jesus to come to him and do a sign. So the Pharisees and Herod both wanted Jesus to do a performance for them. That's the connection between those two. And so what Jesus is telling him is, watch out, this desire to show off, this desire to be self-centered and pump yourself up, this desire to use your power self-servingly, that's leaven. Well, Leaven, first of all, I think most people know this, but we'll just say leaven is, is whatever agent you add to bread dough or dough to get it to rise. Most of the time, mm-hmm. that's yeast. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And what it's saying is that it comes in as something small. You only put a tiny bit of yeast in, a big ball of dough, and yet it permeates that whole thing. It makes that whole thing rise. So mm-hmm. when they're talking about leaven – They're saying this is an insidious evil that creeps in. You barely notice it. But if you let it in, it's going to change everything. Mm -hmm. And leaven in the Old Testament and through customs and all of their culture, leaven was almost always associated with sin because it causes – like leavened bread will rot way faster than unleavened bread. Yes. You know, it'll grow mold, it'll 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 rot far faster and so they would associate leaven with corruption and so during the feast of Passover, all of the Jews would empty out their house, they would sweep out every corner to get rid of any chance that there was any leaven in the house and then they would have the feast of unleavened bread. And it, it was like after, you know, as you're cleaning your house and as you're trying to get all the leaven out of your house or any hint of leaven from your house, it was supposed to be a spiritual exercise where you're thinking, okay, I'm going to do this for myself. I'm going to, as I'm sweeping out actual dirt and leaven, as I'm doing that, I need to reflect on, you know, what what's in my life that needs to be cleaned out. It's right. where we get the notion that still to this day of spring cleaning, if you've ever heard of that. We don't do it much anymore, <laughs> but it used to be a thing, yeah. you know, and that was the idea. Like, you not only clean out your house in the spring, but as you're doing it, you're reflecting and saying, okay, what in my life also needs to be cleaned out? And what he's saying is they have this thing that if it, even a little bit of it, even if the littlest bit of it gets into your loaf before you bake it it's going to be corrupted so you have to be on guard that the smallest bit of their doctrine can corrupt your faith like it can it can make it rot it can make it poisonous 
be very, 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 very on guard against their teaching. Yeah. It's very true. And uh, the uh, one of the things that we used to enjoy so much in memory verses for the out of the King James Version was uh, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that verse. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, it was like this. It was like I, I wanted to get John eleven thirty five as my memory verse. Jesus wept. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. That is a good memory verse assignment right there. The modern equivalent, the same idea is, is what one bad apple. Yeah, spoils the bunch. Yep. Except with leaven, it's even more intense. Yeah. Just the tiniest leaven, and it permeates the whole loaf yeah. and makes it all corruptible. So after Jesus warns them in verse fifteen about the leaven. You just know that the disciples at that moment are going to go, wait, what? What is he talking about? <laughs> leaven. What could the master mean? Master, uh, what is this leaven? What, we, what, what do Herod and the Pharisees have in common, guys? Come on. You just know that. What? No, no. That is not the disciples. <laughs> Verse 16, they, Jesus says to them, beware of the, fair, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they said, yeah, okay. You only got one loaf of bread. <laughs> Verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Hmm. One of the things I like about the New Testament, and just in general, the Bible, is that unlike so many other ancient religious texts, that's a very human moment. It's like mm-hmm. when you you could just picture being those disciples and kind of half hearing what the master said because you're worried about, am I going to have enough to eat on this boat ride? <laughs> when they have these human moments, that is to me the moment at which the gospel records really just ring true because you wouldn't put that kind of thing in. If you were looking to make up a heroic story about your favorite rabbi and his faithful followers, you wouldn't put a moment like that in. But Mark does. Mark is like, this is what took place on that boat. Yeah, the disciples are always seeming like goofballs. <laughs> you know, like they're answering the wrong question or they're totally baffled at what Jesus has just done. And I mean, like the best benefit of the doubt that I could even give them here is if he says, you know, beware of the Pharisees. The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, and they're like, oh my gosh, we don't have any bread. Like, is we're going to have to be on guard from whom we get bread now? Like, we don't even have any bread ourselves. Like, I, it just seems like they're Yeah, completely... you're being nice to them there. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. I think you're right. I think they're, they're, they're probably are, like, out of left field. Yeah. But when Jesus comes back and gets to them, when he's talking to them about you know, being on guard against the Pharisees and being on guard against Herod, he then stresses the number. Like, he's like, he's saying, okay, how many baskets full did you have at the end of feeding the 5,000? 12. How many at the end of feeding the four? Seven. And he says, don't you understand yet? And 
it doesn't then spoon feed you the answer. I love that about the text too, because most other religious texts spoon feed you all the doctrine. Right. And the gospels and Jesus's interactions with the apostles are so human that you're left going like, when I read that, I was like, no, I don't. What does this mean? <laughs> you know, <laughs> who, who cares about seven? I don't get it. What is it? And it forces me to stop and think through, okay, God, how have you worked through humanity for all this time? What is the significance of seven? Why does it matter that there were seven baskets left over? Like, And it shows like God is working among this world in ways that really infuriate both Herod and the Pharisees. The Pharisees would say, absolutely no, the Gentiles should not be included in. And he's he's breaking all of these. And so what he's saying is, I'm teaching you a new path, a new path that's going to make all the camps and trenches that are in this world, all the political affiliations, all the religious camps and denominations, if you understand my teaching, you're going to alienate all of them because all of them hold up some kind of an idol that is not me. They have some ultimate thing that they're all trying to grasp, and it's not me. And I want you to understand that that little bit of leaven, whatever it is, whatever their hobby horse is, whatever their great cause is, whatever their political affiliation is, that's the leaven. And when it gets into the gospel, it will corrode it. If you put political affiliation above the gospel, guess what's going to happen to your gospel? It's going to become gross after a while. Yeah. It's going to rot. If you put any of these man-made traditions and power crusades and everything else, if you add that into the gospel, you're going to have a gospel that is getting moldy within a week. Get rid of that leaven. I want you to understand the pure gospel that I am showing you. I go to the Syrophoenician woman and I love her and I don't give her crumbs I give her healing, and I go to the Decapolis, where these people have only known the contempt of the Jews, but I want to show them that the God of the Jews gives them a feast and is ready to heal them. I want you to get rid of that leaven that's poisoning your understanding of the gospel, because it will make your gospel rot if you don't. Yes. Yep. And they didn't understand you know, no, nope. they, <laughs> they didn't. Because I think that that's pointed out by what is going to come through the rest of the chapter. It's going to tell us the disciples understood partway, but they didn't yet fully understand. It says, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Now, I have, a, I have a, my take on this, what I think it's trying to communicate. And I think it begins right here at the beginning, Sam. It says he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, which meant he led him away from the crowd. His mm. disciples would have come with him, but the crowd would have stayed behind. So Jesus, you know, he's going to heal this guy. He's decided to heal this guy. But he wants to do it for a limited audience in front of his disciples. Mm. You know, when he does these other miracles of healing, casting out evil spirits, he does them right in, right in town, right where the people mm -hmm. are, because those are there to testify to his mission and his message. But in this case, 
I think that this healing, because this is the only healing recorded that occurs in two stages. Otherwise, Jesus just heals you. And I think it begins with the fact that we have to recognize Jesus first limited his audience. He got away from the crowds with the man. And then he does this thing where he spits on his eyes and do you see anything? And the guy sees, but he doesn't see clearly. He sees shapes moving about, but he doesn't see clearly. And then Jesus opens his eyes and he sees clearly. And, and my take on this, why did Jesus do it this way? I've read a lot of things in different commentaries. One, several mm-hmm. commentaries suggested that this was here to say that healing isn't always instantaneous and we have to be patient with Jesus as God mm-hmm. heals over time. Like, I think that's been the majority of the commentaries I've seen takes that approach with yeah. us. Uh, well, I'm not surprised that I disagree with the majority yeah. of commentaries. We're both in the minority on this. Yeah. I think that Jesus is showing his disciples they're seeing and they're seeing clearly. There's a difference between those two things. So that's my take on it. <laughs> I have no idea if that's – I mean, that's the Mark, Mark version. If I'm going to write my commentary, that's what I think it was about. And I really went that way because he started by limiting his audience. Yeah, there's no doubt. Like again and again and again, if you were, if you were to lay down one of the main themes of Mark chapter 8, it's like you know, for seven chapters, Jesus – I mean, we call this in our church, the first half of the gospel of Mark is the identity of Jesus. And he is repeatedly saying, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, yep. Jesus is God. He's doing all these things that only God can do. And all through this chapter, he's asking these diagnostic questions all of a sudden. Now we've gone from like, okay, here's, here's the object lesson. I'm doing all these things for you to understand who I am and what we're doing. And now he's getting to the point where you start seeing a lot of uh, questions like, why does this generation seek a sign? Do you not yet understand? Are you seeing anything? Who do people say that I am? Like, now, It's like almost like chapter 8 is getting to the final exam of, uh, who am I? <laughs> you right. know, It's perception. And so when he does this miracle in two parts of seeing – you know the first first half. You know the first half of the miracle. Do you see anything? The guy looks up and he sees trees walking, and then Jesus lays his hands on again, and now they see clearly. I, there's definitely something going on with perception, and so I'll give you my minority view, which <laughs> which I think kind of walks alongside what yours is. And this I got this from Doctor Gage. I don't know if he still holds this, but he did years ago. But and when he first taught it, I thought, well, that's absurd. <laughs> You know, but he says, you know, this Jesus comes and never, nowhere else in all the scriptures does Jesus do a miracle in parts, right? When he does a miracle, it's instantaneous. When he says to the storm, hush, be still, it's not, okay, the storm gradually slowed down. Like, it's immediate calm. When he, other places, when he heals the blind man, he doesn't then ask him diagnostic questions, are you seeing anything? He says, okay, now you're healed and go, go see the priest so they can declare you clean or whatever. Like, it's immediate. Always. And Jesus never has to say, okay, how about now? Well, let me try something else. How about now? You know, like he knows that he's healing. This is the only time where he asks a probative question. And the guy looks up and he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And in this chapter, Jesus is really directing his people to gain a spiritual understanding that is contrary to the way this world works. And what Dr. Gage taught, I hope I'm re- counting what he shared faithfully here but when they open when he opens his eyes at first and he sees people looking like trees walking he says maybe that wasn't deficient sight but it was just spiritual sight 
because you know when when you see people who look like trees walking, that's really weird. You know, it feels like something out of Lord of the Rings or something. You know. Yep. But at the end of this passage, when he finally gets to brass tacks with his disciples, and they're like, we don't get it. We don't get it. No, you shouldn't be allowed to suffer. He's going to come back at the end of this chapter, and he's going to say, anyone who will come after me has to take up a cross and follow after me. Well, what would a person who's taking up a cross and walking after him look like? It would look like a tree. people who are trees walking. Yeah. And so, it's, I don't think Jesus gives a failed or a half-hearted healing. I, I think there's a real possibility that Jesus is giving spiritual sight first to this guy, and then he puts his hands on again, and he restores physical sight, and the guy sees things as they are in the physical world, clearly. But the walking trees is interesting to me. I think I think that is spiritual sight. Can't that's that's again that's <laughs> that's an interpretation. So if you say that's ridiculous, that's how I responded when I first heard it. Yeah. But the longer I look at it, the more it seems to fit the whole theme of this chapter. And Jesus is teaching people to see with spiritual eyes. Mm. Yeah, I, that may well be. Um, I I think that the that one of our interpretations have in common is that this wasn't a half-hearted healing. That Jesus deliberately healed this man in two stages. Mm-hmm. He had a he had a purpose in it. Whatever that purpose was, if it was to warn the disciples that you're not seeing everything, you're missing things, or if, like you say, it was it was to show spiritual sight and and see these guys like walking as if they had crosses on them, because you can talk about that in a little bit. Um, I think the biggest thing that we agree on here is that this was not like a weak Jesus or a mistaken Jesus. Yeah. Jesus had a point here. You know, mm-hmm. there's something he wanted to get across. Yeah, it's not like Iron Man's battery went low. Yeah, yeah. So the next three verses are three of the most common, like well-known verses, this incident around. Um, Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Okay. Makes, you know, they're trying to figure it out. And he says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And our favorite answer for everybody guy steps up. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So I think, first of all, we got to say that Peter answers the question correctly, um, mm-hmm. but we're, we're going to see in a minute that, that they don't really understand what the Christ has come to do. What has Messiah come to do? We're going to see that next. But, at, but the part that they see correctly with the spiritual sight, with the dim vision, whatever, mm-hmm. the part that they see correctly is he is the Messiah. You are the Christ. They've got that down. Mm-hmm. And if, if you look at Matthew's gospel, he pulls up the site. You know, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Your your physical eyes didn't reveal that to you. You have spiritual sight that's been revealed to you by my Father who's in heaven. And so, again, there's this notion of spiritual sight going on. It's yeah. been revealed to you by the living God. And, you know, when people ask, why, why would people think he's, you know, the resurrected John the Baptist? 
Well, it's because he's confronting the powerful. He's calling the Pharisees out. He's a continuation of something that John the Baptist was really good at. And all of a sudden, John disappears, and Jesus fills the void for a lot of the people. And they think he's John the Baptist, or Elijah had done all these miracles. He's the only prophet of the Old Testament that participated in raising someone from the dead. And the Jews, by the way, believed that before the coming of the Messiah, Elijah had to return. And so they're thinking, maybe this is him. Maybe he's the precursor to the Messiah. And others are saying, you know, maybe he's one of the other prophets because, man, his messages are really, really powerful. And all of those are wrong answers. And Mm -hmm. so when he turns to the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Peter nails it. You're you're the Messiah, the Christ. Um, And then he says what he says so often in the Gospel of Mark. I don't want you to tell anybody about this. Which is an interesting thing. You would mm-hmm. think, why, why would he possibly not want them to tell him about it? Uh, and we've talked about this before. It's that mm-hmm. prior to his resurrection, it's like he has a, a mission to undertake that requires that he be arrested, tried, tortured, killed, and rise from the dead. It's like mm-hmm. that has to happen. He's focused on that. And he knows mm-hmm. that if his disciples persuade enough people that he's the Messiah and he's here to break them loose from Rome, they will actually try to make him king. He doesn't mm-hmm. want that. Yeah, that happened right after. If you in, in the Gospel of John, right after he feeds the 5,000, it says he had to escape from the Jews because they came and tried to make him king by force, just yeah. like you said. And so this has already happened when he's just done miracles without making you know, super obvious public claims. I mean, it's obvious that he's God, but he's not saying, I am the Messiah. Everybody kneel before me. Get my scepter. I'm the king. I deserve all authority. I deserve all power and glory. Like right now, he's showing you a side of God that comes winsomely and humbly to win his people and to be weak and to suffer among them, which is wild. And he does not want that interrupted until he has shown them that he is willing to walk the road of suffering far greater than any human being ever will mm-hmm. to win us forever. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't, like you said, he doesn't want anything to get in the way of that mission. And right after he says, don't tell anyone about this, he does exactly what you said. He immediately began to teach them of everything that has to happen to him. Right. Yeah, you know, and in personal worship this week, um, for this particular day, when we meditated on this passage, I talked a little bit about, in the, in the study notes that I wrote, I talked a little bit about the, uh, the fact that people today have lots of opinions of who Jesus was also. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's enough archaeological, scientific evidence of the existence of Jesus that people really – there was a time when they used to go, I don't even think there was a Jesus. Really, there was a Jesus. You, mm-hmm. What you think of him, we'll talk about that. But to say that a man named Jesus who was a rabbi, a religious teacher, that – that did, you know, kind of stirred things up in first century, wasn't ever here. No, we've we've gone past that point. That's pretty much proven now. Mm-hmm. So, people have an opinion. Who do you think Jesus was? Well, you know, I mean, I think he was a, a great a religious teacher or a rabbi. They'll have different opinions, you know. And some of them, having been to Sunday school once in their life, will say almost by reflex, "He's the Son of God." Just like the disciples are, you are the Christ. But they don't know what that means. So one of the things Mm -hmm. I asked in study notes was, one of the reflection questions is, if that's the answer you get, 
What's the next question you ask to see if they understand what it means to be the Son of God? Mm -hmm. Because I think people are quick to assign him that label. He's the Son of God, right? Didn't we we all learn that in Sunday school? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean anything to them. Yeah, one of the the most profound uh, thoughts that someone came to me with is, you know, when Satan comes to Adam and Eve in the beginning, in Genesis – and, and, you know, this is before the fall, right? And he comes to, to Adam and, and Eve, and he says, you know, you sure you can eat from that tree, you know, and, and you'll be like God. And that's part of the temptation. But in their mind, when you hear that, what do you immediately think? Like, I can be like God makes me think, ooh, I can have all power, and I can have all autonomy, and I can control everyone, and I can make them do whatever I want, and I can, I can be wealthy, and I can be comfortable, and I can do all these things. And when we imagine what it is to be like God, that's immediately where we go. If someone said you could be God for a day, that's where you go, power, you know. Too many people have seen the movie Bruce Almighty. <laughs> right. But what Jesus is showing, you want to know what it's like to be God. Well, here's God in the flesh, you know, and he's entirely a, a servant. He's humble. He pours mm-hmm. himself out. He doesn't use his power to, to be self-aggrandizing. He doesn't use his power to lord it over others or to make people suffer. He uses his power to lay down his life for everyone else. That's what it means to be like God. When Satan asks that question, he poisons their mind to think, oh, if I could just be like God, it would be easy and I would have you know power and wealth and all that stuff, and that would be my nature. Jesus comes to say, yeah, I've got all that, but I'd give it away yeah. for you. You know, I'm, I'm selfless. I'm humble as God. You want to be like God? Start there. Yeah. Um, and when, like you said, when they say, hey, you're, you're the son of the living God, you're the Christ, that's what they're imagining. That's what the apostles are imagining. That's what the Pharisees are demanding to see. And God is coming and it's like, you don't get it. That's at my core. That's, that's not who I am. I am not self-serving. I'm not self-aggrandizing. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not here just for me. I've come to save the lost at great expense to myself. And that's what we see in this next verse, in verse 31, right after their quick and correct answer of, you are the Christ, verse 31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Mm. I think that that's, you know, because you're thinking, well, how is he not setting his thing, his eyes, his mind on the things of God? And I think it's because, you know, they were willing to acknowledge that this guy Jesus was pretty powerful. We've seen mm-hmm. him doing things. We know he can do stuff. And if he's the Messiah, maybe he's going to be the one to become that great national leader to throw off the yoke, yoke of Rome and let Israel live free again. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what they're looking for. And I'm sure that's what Jesus was getting an earful of from Peter. Peter's mm-hmm. like, wait, what? You're going to die? 
you got to you got to bail us out of this hole first. That kind of thing. <laughs> and and Jesus like, is like that's that is what men want. You've mm-hmm. got to put your mind on what God wants. You know, I almost I look at this also and I think it's Kind of funny, Peter gets the answer correct, and the teacher says, great job, Peter, you're right. And then before you know it, Peter's correcting the teacher. Yes. You know, no, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, so Peter of him. Um, but what's in this, when when the Lord looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, that's not the first time he's ever said that. You know, you if you go back to Matthew 4, Luke 4, the, the temptation narratives, when Satan comes to Jesus and he gives him three temptations, you know, it's... You, you shouldn't be hungry. Tell these stones to become bread or throw yourself down from the temple and God is obligated to have his angels catch you or kneel before me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Hidden in all of those temptations is this request from Satan that if God really loved you, you should not have to suffer. Right. And here comes Peter and he's saying, man, no, no, no. If you really are the son of God, like I've just said, you're the living God, you know, the son of the living God, you're the Christ. And if you really are him, you should not be forced to do all these things that you just said. You shouldn't be killed by the scribes and you shouldn't have to raise from the dead. You shouldn't have to suffer. It's the exact argument that Satan makes to him earlier. It is. And he says the exact same thing to Peter that he said to Satan. Get an exact same in the Greek. Get behind me, Satan. And there's, I think there's such instruction there because there's so often in our lives where we are tempted to feel like if God really loved me, I shouldn't have to suffer. And Jesus is telling us that that accusation, that that logic is from the pit of hell. Yeah. That if you're suffering, if you're walking through a hard season, that is not evidence that God has forsaken you, and you can look to the Son of the living God, the Christ, the one who loves you infinitely, and see him saying, that is not the case. Get yeah. behind me, Satan. Those are lies from the pit of hell. Yeah. And then he concludes uh, with this passage where, again, this is a pretty well-known passage, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, so he gathers the crowd around to, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That, you know, just just like four verses, and it's like that's a whole seminary class of stuff. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a seminary class worth of time left. So, um, <laughs> yeah, take us through this, and, and there's a, there's at least there's the denial of himself, take up a cross, lose his life and find it, profit and soul. There's a bunch of stuff in there. Mm-hmm. What is this talking about? So you know, this is talking about a life of sanctification. Um, and we've talked about this before, that there are three different stages of salvation, and that sounds like really weird. You know, there's there's a word that's called justification, where when you place your faith in Christ, 
you're saved from the penalty of sin, past tense, like it's done over with. You can't lose that salvation. You belong to Christ. You're sealed by him. The next stage of salvation is the present tense kind of salvation, and that's sanctification. And it's not, you know, the first one is you're being saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is you're being saved from the power of sin, like in your daily life. It's a present tense. It's a grind. And that is where it says, okay, Jesus has taken up the cross to save you from the penalty of sin. But now in your sanctification, he's saying, okay, if you're mine, if you belong to me, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you've become a new man. Every single person that's ever born is born with a selfish nature. We're born and we don't keep our own standards, not to mention God's. And what Jesus is saying is, You've got to die to all that stuff. Every day you have to wake up and say, I'm going to put to death the Sam nature, the selfish nature, the self-seeking nature, and I'm going to live for him. I'm going to crucify Sam, the old me, and I'm going to let the Spirit empower me to live for him. And and the great you know, and then finally, the last stage of of salvation is the fun one, and that's fu- in the future, and it's glorification, and that's when you're saved from even the presence of sin. There will be no bad stuff on the day that He comes back and takes us into glory, or when we die and go to be with Him. But what Jesus is saying is, between now and then, like whoever's going to save His life is going to lose it. Like if you say, "Oh, but I'm not willing to give up all the days between now and my death. I want to live for me. I want to chase my agenda. I want to chase my kingdom." At the end of the day, when you stand and a reckoning before God on the precipice of eternity, you lose everything. And here's the crazy thing: like the atheist, everybody, everybody knows this. Nobody questions the fact that everything you're living for right now is going to be stripped from you at the grave. You don't get to take your money. You don't, you don't get to take your career. You don't even get to take your loved ones, your wife, your kids, your husband. You lose it all. And so if you're living just for this world, if you're just trying to, to preserve this life, guess what? You lose it all. It's a guarantee. Everybody agrees there. But if you're willing to lose your life here, if you're willing to say, oh my gosh, you've purchased me and I'm no longer my own and, and you've taken up a cross for me, you withheld nothing from me and now in response and gratitude to you, man, my life is yours. What, what, do you want, what do you want me to do with it? Like my selfish nature, oh, it's going to be a struggle, but I'm going to struggle against my selfish nature. I'm going to crucify myself. I'm going to lay down my agenda and my kingdom in all the days that I have between now and death for your sake and the gospel, right? Then I will have life. And everything that I do between now and the day that I die has eternal reward. It has eternal implications. It goes on forever. It's not wasted by the grave. And then he says, what does it profit? If you, okay, let's say that you spend all the days of your life between now and the grave and you gain the whole world, but you forfeit your soul. Like, what, what can you give in return for your soul? You've lost it all. Mm. And so it's a fool's errand to live this life with no hope for what's beyond. It's a fool's errand. And so be willing to deny yourself for the sake of following him. It's it's a brilliant argument condensed and you know what took me you know and explaining it poorly Jesus says in two sentences 
and it's a great call to sanctification. It's not a great sales pitch in our modern era because anything that costs us anything we want to reject, and Jesus doesn't, he doesn't give us a sales pitch or apologize for the gospel. What he's saying is, if you're coming to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. You can't buy it, and it's totally free. That's, that's the, it's, it's counterintuitive because the gospel comes and says you can't purchase it. You, you'll never have enough to buy it. It's totally given to you because of what I do. But if you come, I want all of you. And that doesn't even begin to purchase what I'm offering you. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I just, I've purchased you. And it's a recognition of that. Um, but it's liberating to not own yourself, yeah. you know, to, to yield over to his mission and to receive the fruit of the Spirit and all the things that come with it in time. Yeah. And... You know, I think that everybody, you know, everybody tries to pick these things apart because they use figurative language, lose your life, you know, that kind of thing. You know, Jesus isn't calling us to run out in front of the tanks and martyr ourselves. What he's, it's the same kind of language that's used where, you know, Jesus talked, where they talk about if you don't hate your father and mother. Well, you're not supposed to hate your father and mother. You're supposed to love Jesus so much. That mm-hmm. any other love looks like hate. And so when he says lose your life, he's not saying actually lose your life. What he's saying is you should be so willing to and dedicated to live what I have for you to do that it looks like your die, your old life has died, like it's gone. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that um, you know, I used to say this all the time. People ask me about what's Jesus calling me to do. I would say to them, Jesus isn't telling you to do any specific thing different. Jesus is telling you to do everything differently. Mm -hmm. I think that's the distinction in my mind. He's telling you that if you're living for me, for my mission, to accomplish my purpose, you may do some of the same things that you would have done otherwise, but you do them for a different reason. You do them with a different goal in mind. You do them in a way that accomplishes my mission. Um, and that, quite frankly, to me, is that difference. Not necessarily going to do any specific, specific thing different, but you can do everything differently. So, hmm. Another one of those strange Markisms. I got a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> the last words here hit our ears, modern ears, you know, when it talks about being ashamed. Um, you know, the idea, when, when Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the, with the holy angels. Like, there's a, there's a sense in which that word shame, it's, it's a turning away from. Like, if you're embarrassed by somebody, you don't make eye contact, you don't want to acknowledge that they're there, you, you're, you're turning away from, it's like you're, you're embarrassed by them. And what Jesus is saying is it's a very stark warning, just as he, the sales pitch for Christianity here is, I want everything. I, this isn't just, hey, add Christianity as, as a nice little decorative, you know, what do you tchotchke yeah. in your life you know he's like no no no. i want it all i want you to lay down your life this is i'm not calling you to something that's you know milk toast or moderate or you know just a decoration and at the at the end here he's saying like look if you turn away from me and my words 
on the day of judgment, I'm going to turn away from you. Like there, this is high stakes and that's hard to hear because, you know, in our Western culture, you know, even just the, the, the desires of our heart, we want to see everybody saved. And what Jesus is saying here is, is if you turn away from me and my words, then on that day that matters most on the precipice of eternity, the only one who can save you will turn away from you. Mm. And that's, that is a harsh reality. Um, to, to think of, but everything that the Lord is asking of us, this is wild. Let's, let's put this into proper context because right now it feels like, oh my gosh, that's kind of harsh a little. The God of the universe, think about that. The God of the universe took on flesh and did all of this for you. The God of the universe set aside all of the privileges of heaven. He came into this world he was denied, rejected, forsaken, mocked. The Pharisees harassed him his whole life, plotted against him. They, they spat on him. They beat him. They crucified him. He literally went to a cross and set everything aside so that he could have you. And now he's looking at you and saying, figuratively, I want you to deny your life and take up a cross and live for me. Follow me. Make this world a more beautiful place. I'm the God who designed it. I know how this world is is to run and to operate, how it would be wonderful and joyful and filled with the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to deny your selfish impulses. Follow me. He's calling to us, calling us to something beautiful, and yet he's the only hope of the world. His cross is the only one that purchases us our salvation, period. And if you will not look at him, if you look away from him because you're ashamed at the thought of grabbing hold of him with both hands, then you forfeit the only thing that can save you on that day. He is the only hope of salvation. But if you're going to grab hold of him, he might, you know, and the thing is you're not going to be perfect overnight and you're not going to do this perfectly overnight. But when you grab hold of him, he's saying, I want you to understand, like, I want it all. You're going to you're gonna do it imperfectly? That's Okay. But I want you to understand I'm purchasing all of you, and I yeah. want all of you to follow me. Yeah. Well, that's a good yeah. word, and uh, it's one we're going to end on uh, because the clock on the wall says we've already talked too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, folks, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us today, that it's been profitable for you. Um, if you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com. Where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, or at our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app available for iOS and Android devices. Sam and I'll be back next week with another from the book, The Gospel of Mark, although it will be a shift to the mission of Jesus. We hope that you've enjoyed this part about the identity of Jesus and that it has communicated to you a great deal about who Jesus was, what kind of person he was, and that you'll you'll come back next week as we get into chapter 9, talking about the mission of Jesus. We look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.